Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the pleasure of chatting with Sakira Hudson, assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley High School of Business. Kiera studies hierarchies, how hierarchies are formed, how they are maintained, and how they intersect. In this episode, we chat about her work on social dominance orientation. Why do some people feel justified to discriminate against minorities? Kiera explains that a desire for social dominance leads to less empathy and more schadenfreude towards minorities. Finally, Kiera shares what it was like working with the late Jim Sidanius, a legend in psychology and how she stumbled into psychology research. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Today at Stanford Psychology Podcast, I am so excited to be chatting with Kiara. And I want to talk to you about social dominance orientation and empathy and schadenfreude and all these important things. But first, thank you for joining the podcast. And how are you doing? You just moved across the country. You moved into a new position as assistant professor. Congratulations. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I cannot complain. I'm really enjoying my job. It's really cool to finally reach a place that you've been working so hard to reach. So I did two years as a lab manager. I did six years in grad school. I did two years of a postdoc. That was through the pandemic. And so now finally starting an assistant professor position is a dream come true, really. So, But it is a fire hose to the face. First year is a fire hose to the face. I'm absolutely living that <laughs> So it's green. I'm enjoying the water, but the water is coming full force. Yeah, I heard it's maybe the biggest transition in academia because as a grad student, you learn how to do research. And now as a professor, you have to run a lab and secure funding in ways that may or may not have been taught before writing grants at a level that is previously unexperienced. So how do you feel like it's a big transition or did you feel like it was more of a smooth transition? It's a combination of Now a new clock is ticking. So there's a clock in grad school, but it's a, it's a loose clock because if you can't take an extra year in grad school, for the most part, nobody is worried about it. But now it's, you need to go up for tenure. And so you almost hear this clock ticking. And so all of my decisions feel like they have greater weight because it doesn't seem like I have as much room for error. And then you add on top of that, the Okay, now you need to be doing some service, you need to be doing some teaching, you need to be doing some mentorship, you need to be doing some research. At what level is you're supposed to do that? Who knows? But figure it out so that you can get tenure. And a lot of these things we probably I have done in grad school, but not all at the same time, all at the same level. And again, trying to figure out that balance is difficult. And I think that's the biggest transition. You go from being part of a, a startup to running the startup And you don't, you didn't realize there was a lot of things you didn't learn by watching. There's only things that you can learn by doing. And so that is where I am. I'm learning by doing right now. All right. We all wish you good luck and wish you're all going to be well. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about this wonderful research of yours. And the research is great. The themes are pretty dark, right? We will be talking about <laughs> cruelty and indifference is the point 
of really hate crimes against minorities. And so where do we even start? I think a good place to start would be to define a concept that is very relevant to your work, social dominance orientation. What is that? And who is most socially dominant in society? What demographics predict this? That's a really good question. So social dominance orientation, or STO, it measures the extent to which people accept and promote group-based inequality. So it's important to know that STO is about groups, not about individuals. So there might be some people who individually want to dominate others, but that does not necessarily mean that they have high levels of social dominance orientation. When you think about the people who are invested in hierarchy, so thinking about that there are different social groups in America, or not just in America, but, you know, in the world, what these dimensions, you can think about race, you can think about gender, you can think about nationality, you can think about religion. And I think we all place them in a hierarchy where some of these groups have more social, economic, political power than others. But people who have high levels of SEO, they believe that hierarchical difference is good, natural, even the way that it should be, and that we should do what we need to keep it that way. Whereas there are other people who might believe, no, groups are not inherently better than others. All groups should be given an equal chance to succeed. And those are people who are low in SDO, low in social dominance orientation. And so it might not be surprising, but people who have high levels of SDO tend to be more racist, more sexist, more xenophobic. <laughs> they tend to endorse the more punitive things in order to keep hierarchy intact. It's important to know that all else being equal, the groups that are that have higher power tend to have higher levels of SDO, but that's not always the case. So you can be a, in a group that has that's like disadvantaged in whatever society we're talking about and have higher levels of SDO. Now, when that happens, of course, things get a little complicated because you believe that some groups be at the top and others at the bottom, but your group is at the bottom. How do you navigate that? Gets a little complicated. And that's why there's much more work focusing on the SDO levels of people who are advantaged in society. So at least in America, that would be white people, that would be men, that would be Americans, for example, looking at like immigrant populations, et cetera. And SDO, as you say, predicts all kinds of intergroup harm to narrow this vast literature down to this one recent publication of yours on cruelty and indifference. You differentiate between active and passive harm. What are those? Ooh, great question. When we think about helping and harming, we might think that they are on like, those are two sides of the same coin. I don't quite see it that way. In part because me not helping, I think is harming you and me not harming you, depending on the context, could be me helping you. And so when I think about passive versus active harm, the way that I like to think about it is imagining a situation where somebody is drowning. So let's take a social group begin to take racial minorities in America and their struggle that they face is symbolized by them drowning. Now, if I am on the shores watching them drown, I can passively harm them by not helping them. So if I have a life raft and I could send it over to them and help them out and I choose not to, that is a form of passive harm. However, if I look to my right and I see a big rock, I can instead take that rock and drop it on their head. That would be an active form of harming because I'm making their drowning even worse than it already was. And I think that is the distinction I am, I make between active and passive harm. 
And when we think about the motivations of not helping versus actively seeking to make someone's existence worse than it already is, I think that distinction matters when it comes to things like SDO, when it comes to the emotions that might predict doing one or the other. And I think it also matters because on average, we tend to think that passive harm is not as bad as active. And I understand that moral impulse. There's actually a lot of work in moral psychology where inaction is seen as less harmful, less bad as action. But in the case of like group harm, I think they end up leading to very similar outcomes. And likewise, as you alluded to, there's a difference between having low empathy for a group and having active schadenfreude for a group. What is schadenfreude and how is it different from a little empathy? Oh, great question. So schadenfreude is one of those really cool words that it's fun to say. Is a schadenfreude? Is a schadenfreude? It's we stole it from the Germans and it essentially means that you feel some joy in the suffering of others. Schadenfreude is a, an aspect of emotion. It's an emotion that or it's a form of we call it counter empathy because it seems to be <laughs> opposite that of empathy, but it's when you feel a little bit good at someone else's pain. And so when we think about empathy, there's many definitions of empathy. For example, the cognitive capacity to understand the experiences of others. In my work, I tend to focus on empathy as like an emotion and affective understanding rather than more cognitive because I contrast it with schadenfreude, which is this, again, this feeling state. And so the way that I've defined empathy is when you feel the congruent emotional state that you assume somebody else is feeling. So in this case, you have this wonderful pocket. You've done so, so much great work on it. And you're probably feeling really good. And if your happiness makes me happy, I'm feeling a form of empathy. I'm feeling positive empathy in this case because you're feeling positively and I'm feeling positively in response to your emotions. Positive empathy. We usually think about empathy, though, it's in the negative sense. Imagine, I guess this podcast, I don't know, no one listens to this episode. And so you're really sad. And if I'm sad because of your sadness, I'm feeling negative empathy. Now, when we think about schadenfreude as counter empathy, it seems like, again, that these are two sides of the same coin. And I'm arguing that they're actually not. Just because I don't feel Empathy for you does not necessarily mean I feel schadenfreude. When you don't have empathy for people, for the most part, you don't feel anything. It's closer to apathy or maybe indifference. It's I'm not really feeling any emotions towards you whatsoever. And so when we think about the work on harming and helping, empathy tends to be related to helping behaviors. And that tends to be where people put a lot of their eggs. It's yes, if we could only get groups to feel empathy towards others, that would lead to so much harmony amongst groups. And the natural corollary almost is if people don't feel empathy, that is going to lead to all this harm. And at least in my work, what I've found is that the lack of empathy does not necessarily lead to harm, at least to indifference, which doesn't really predict harm at all, it predicts doing nothing or this passive form of harm. In order to get to this active form of harm, you need a more, you actually need an active emotion. You need something that might lead people to want to harm others. And at least in my work, I've found that schadenfreude might be one of those types of emotions that can do that. Now, to be super clear, I'm not saying it's only schadenfreude. Uh, I think probably other emotions can do this. But if we're in the realm of this, like this empathy versus counter empathy dynamic, focusing on empathy isn't enough to explain why people harm. It is enough to explain why people don't help. 
but it's not enough to explain why people don't harm. And for that, I think we need to include counter empathic emotions in this broad equation. Now, the final thing I'll say about the relationship between empathy and counter empathy is that, again, people think that there are two sides of the same coin. And if that were true, they should be highly correlated. At least in my work, they're not. But the, sometimes the correlations are nil. There's no correlation between the amount of empathy people feel and the amount of schadenfreude. I think the highest correlation I've ever found is like maybe a correlation of 0.4 or point like negative 0.4. And so sometimes related, but for the most part, these are distinct, distinct emotions. More questions on schadenfreude in part because I'm German and I will use any opportunity to snuggle in some German into this conversation. <laughs> is Schadenfreude related to a general tendency for sadism. Are those two things related? Really great question. So they are in the same way that I would say schadenfreude is maybe the baby cousin of sadism. But sadism oftentimes is the feeling pleasure at someone else's pain and also wanting to like for the sake of their pain, like there, there's no relationship between competition, deservingness, like in terms of the inputs of why you feel sadism. And I would say sadism is a much higher bar than schadenfreude. I will say that schadenfreude doesn't just happen though. Like people aren't just out here running around feeling good at other people's misfortunes. There are some precursors that go into it. And some of the biggest precursors are like one of the biggest is feelings of deservingness. And when somebody deserves this misfortune, we do feel a little bit good about it. And so from that perspective, people sometimes think about schadenfreude like karma or like you had it coming. You had it coming. I'm thinking of the show Chicago or the musical Chicago. But I deviate from like past understandings of schadenfreude because like sadism, I think schadenfreude can be an active emotion too. The one big difference that people in the in past literature feel about schadenfreude versus empathy is that empathy is an active emotion. When I feel empathy, I do something with it. I engage in pro-social behaviors. Whereas for a lot of people, schadenfreude is passive. It's, I had nothing to do with your misfortune. I didn't create it, nothing. But now that I get to witness your misfortune, I do feel a little bit good about it. Either because we're in a competition so you think about sports teams and the other, the rival team loses. I'm on the sidelines. I didn't have nothing to do with it, but I do feel some schadenfreude. And I can even feel schadenfreude if you're not even playing against my team. You're, you're my rival and you're losing against some other team. And I still feel good about your misfortune. So that feels very passive. At least in my work, I'm, I, this is where my current work is going that I think schadenfreude is also active in the same way that empathy is, that when you feel good about the misfortune happening to another group, especially if it's in this competitive setting, especially if you think that they, we like to feel good, right? And so that is naturally reinforcing. And the more that I'm reinforcing this feeling good, why wouldn't I then go engage in behaviors to make me feel good on my own? Like, Logically, I think that makes sense. And so that is where I think schadenfreude and sadism might be similar, but I think the levels are different. And also I think sadism goes into the realm of like clinical disorders, which I don't necessarily study. I think anybody can feel schadenfreude. And that's an important thing to know. Sometimes we think, oh, that sounds super cruel. It sounds super sadistic to feel good at someone else's pain. But I think we do it all the time. We feel it all the time. If you had an ex who cheated on you and then they go off and then they get cheated on, 
you can't tell me. There isn't just like a little kernel of, mm, that's what you get. <laughs> I do feel a little bit good at your suffering. A couple of years ago, I was reading in an American journal written by American authors that the Germans have a word that's the flip side of schadenfreude called Glücksschmerz, uh, which is supposed to be the pain you feel when someone is succeeding, which I have to say is a great word that we Germans actually should have, <laughs> but don't have. So that's weird. But if we had a word for it, it might as well be Glücksschmerz, even harder to pronounce. I feel like if you Americans make up words for us Germans, at least make up words that are easier to pronounce, but here we are. So what is the relationship between Schadenfreude and Glücksschmerz? I imagine these two would be intercorrelated. Yes, they are correlated, or again, in, in the work that I've done. So in the same way that you can feel positive and negative empathy, Glücksschmerz, you pronounce it so much better than I do. Glücksschmerz and Schadenfreude are similar in that regard. So if I feel, I can feel pleasure at your pain or I can feel bitterness pain at your pleasure. And so one thing that people often ask is, so what's the difference between envy and Glücksmarks? They feel very similar. And the way that I see them as different is envy is often, I want what you have. Like I'm looking at you and I want that for myself. And so there's malicious envy. I could want your downfall so I can have it, but there's benevolent envy, which is, hey, you're inspiring me to be better. That, that, that is envy. But I think people can feel Glücksmarks without actually wanting the thing that the other person has. In the case of presidential elections, people can feel glitchmerts at the opposing party winning, although they don't want to be president. They're not, they don't necessarily want that for themselves. And perhaps they don't even want that for their group. They're just focused on the fact that you have it and I'm bitter about. And there's this one paradigm <laughs> that cracks me up. It's, I don't know if you've heard of like Vladimir's tale, the tale of Vladimir. And so it's a paradigm that my previous advisor, Jim Sidania, used to use in, in, in relationship with SDO. And the tale goes that Vladimir gets a, has a neighbor and the neighbor just has all great things, many more sheep than he has, great lands, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm sure he feels envious of him. And so then God comes down and says, Hey, Vladimir, whatever I'm going to do to you, I'm going to do to your neighbor twice fold. And so then Vladimir thinks, and you know what he says? He's like, you know what? Put out one of my eyes. And God is like, put out one of your eyes? Because by putting out one of Vladimir's eyes, his neighbor now had both of his eyes taken out. And now he's really <laughs> feeling messed up. That to me is not envy. He might feel envy, but there's like a level of bitterness and just like, that might lead someone to engage. And again, in this really active form of harm. And so when I think about the relationship between Lichtenberg and Schadenfreude, and I should say all of this in many ways is speculation because we haven't studied these emotions as much as I think we should. But I think feeling bitterness at someone's pain might then lead you to engage in behaviors that then causes their downfall. When you call it their downfall, you then feel Schadenfreude about it. And then that might lead to just a really nasty cycle of Feeling upset, you don't deserve this good thing you don't deserve. Then I do something about it. Then, oh, I feel good that you now have this downfall and let me keep that cycle going. In the same way that, you know, if you feel positive empathy towards somebody, oh, I feel good because of your happiness. Of course, when you feel sad, I'm going to definitely do something about it. Put you back on unhappiness so I can feel happy too. Again, you have these nice cycles, but one is going towards goodness and the other one is, not so great. Let's talk about the who and what we can do about it. Just summarize. 
social dominance orientation makes people feel less empathy for minorities, which predicts this passive harm and indifference. I don't care. I'm not going to help. And it also predicts more schadenfreude by feeling a certain happiness at another's suffering or group suffering, which predicts this cruelty and active harm. But what are we going to do about it? <laughs> do we have any interventions that increase people's empathy, that decrease people's schadenfreude? Or maybe we have to even take a step back and decrease people's social dominance orientation. Can we do anything about it? So there's a lot of work on altering empathy. So perspective taking, group contact, there's a lot of interventions on what to do about empathy. Less so on schadenfreude, and I think part of that is because, at least in my opinion, it's not clear about what schadenfreude is. So there's so much more research on empathy, not nearly enough on schadenfreude. And that's the type of thing that I am really interested in studying. And so just to give a little, like some thought exercises when I start to think, okay, what is schadenfreude? So there are a lot of Democrats who felt schadenfreude when, at the time, President Trump got COVID. And I think they felt that he deserved it. They felt that he spread misinformation about COVID. And so him getting COVID was a uh, spark schadenfreude in people's minds to the point where I think after he got COVID, Google searches of schadenfreude increased tens of thousands percent because people were like, nah, I'm feeling something. Let me figure out what I'm feeling. And so then I ask people, imagine Trump sick. He's sniffling, he's coughing. Like really imagine his pain. And I think for some people, doing that mental exercise likely lowered their shot for them. And so, that, so then the question is, what were they thinking about when they initially felt shot for them? If when they actually do simulate the pain, shot for them decreases. However, for other people, imagining Trump coughing and sniveling and whatnot likely actually increased their schadenfreude. That instead was, you know what? I hope he suffers. Are those the same types of schadenfreude? Does it matter what type of pain we simulate? Do you ask, am I actually simulating your pain or am I simulating the pain that I think you should feel? So for example, if, I don't know, there's a quadriplegic and I think he deserves to get stabbed in the leg, but there's actually no pain involved. Again, can I feel schadenfreude in that situation? So I have all these different thought exercises that makes me realize I don't even have a good understanding of what schadenfreude is. I think we know it's a phenomenon. We know people feel it. We know it exists. But why and when and like truly the mechanisms, I think there's a lot more research in these that happen. So we know how to manipulate people's levels of empathy and people have done that. There's a lot of interventions. What to do about schadenfreude? Not so much. So then let's go further up the stream and figure out, okay, the antecedents to these emotions, at least in some of my work, has been SDO. And what can we do about SDO? It feels really sticky. It is closer to a personality trait almost in this, it's called an ideology or a world belief. And so from that perspective, it's a little, it's pretty hard to move. And so in some of my work, what I have found is that instead of trying to change people's levels of SDO, what you can change is whether or not SDO almost gets activated. And so if I believe that some groups be at the top and others at the bottom, that kind of implies that these groups are in a zero-sum context, that they're competitive with one another, that one group succeeding is the other group failing. If you can change that mentality, though, to say, actually, these two groups are cooperating, these two groups have interdependent states, that actually, at least in some of the studies that I've run, seems to almost deactivate the relationship between schadenfreude 
empathy, no, SEO empathy and schadenfreude, that instead of SEO leading to increased empathy, it gets attenuated for outgroups and low status groups. So that's not very warm and fuzzy. (laughs) And I actually think it's really going to get worse because the world that we're entering in is a world where I think schadenfreude thrives. Like people are feeling much more animosity towards outgroups and low status groups. People are feeling that resources are scarce, which increases feelings of competition. And in that space, I don't think that that schadenfreude is going to be on the decline. And I even feel that calls for empathy might backfire. Again, when I think about the COVID-19 pandemic, And how so many people were trying to say, hey, you need to have empathy for those who didn't get vaccinated. I think that backfired for some people. No, I don't have empathy. I have even less empathy than I would have had if you didn't ask me to have empathy in the first place. And so that (laughs) seems to be this backfiring effect. So it's even not just that empathy can lead to helping, but if you don't even understand where these, like, these outcomes are coming from, like, why are people being so nasty? It's, it seems like it's actually important to know whether or not it's from a lack of empathy or it might also be this, this Sean for the bit. So not very happy, but I do think that we are, we're now actually paying attention to it, which I think is really important. We're now thinking about that people can be cruel, but why are they cruel? And I think the why will help us figure out how to reduce this, just really nasty behaviors that are happening all, honestly, all over the world. Yeah, what comes to mind are all the different populist and totalitarian authoritarian leaders around them. The number one key to authoritarianism, if you want to get elected, is to invent some sort of scapegoat group, right? There's this one group, often it's immigrants, right? People who are blamed for everything, which I guess gives people a certain sense of order in times of chaos, maybe, right? And so how do you think about this link between the structures and stability of societies, (laughs) And what makes some societies higher in SDO than others? A really good question. So what you're touching on is the relationship between SDO and another ideology called right-wing authoritarianism. And so it's the extent to which people believe that we should follow a strong leader, that we should submit to their wishes, this idea of conventionalism, but for conservatism. Because there's also left-wing authoritarianism. And one of of my most recent studies, I actually compared the relationship between SDO and right-wing authoritarianism on empathy and schadenfreude, like trait levels of empathy and schadenfreude. Because what question I often get is, is SDO special? There are other ideologies out there. Is there anything special about SDO? And at least in, I mean, I only ran two studies, so this is still preliminary work, but it does seem to be actually something quite unique about the relationship between SDO, empathy, and schadenfreude. So while right-wing authoritarianism actually isn't really related to trait levels of empathy at all, which I thought was really interesting, it's slightly related to trait levels of schadenfreude. But SDO, strongly negative related to empathy and strongly positive related to schadenfreude. So that was a finding that I think is really interesting because that suggests that believing that some groups should be at the top and others at the bottom it seems like we're all like people with those high levels of SEO might almost be recruiting a lack of empathy and an increase in cruelty in order to make that work. Whereas for a belief that you should follow the leader, like there should be this more caring about uh, an uh, 
authoritarian government doesn't necessarily have to relate to empathy or schadenfreude. And so then the second part of the study that I ran was asking whether or not you can change the relationship between these ideologies and these emotions based on the target. When you think about for someone who believes in authoritarianism and conservatism, some groups are more threatening to that ideology than others. For example, undocumented immigrants might be more threatening than, I don't know, firefighters or medical specialists. And so what I found is that when I start to assess levels of empathy and schadenfreude towards specific groups, you then get a change in whether or not right-wing authoritarianism is actually related to empathy and schadenfreude. So for groups that activate the ideology, there's a strong negative relationship with empathy and a strong positive relationship with schadenfreude, suggesting that on the whole, SDO might be related to these emotions, but in particular contexts, where you are faced with groups that challenge that ideology, that is when these emotions come into play. And so I haven't done the next step, which is in these situations, do you support policies that harm these groups at the next stage? But it seems like that cascade, or at least the bones of that cascade is present. One last question before we zoom out. You were explicit at the very beginning of our conversation that SDO is about groups, right? Some groups are entitled to dominate others. But of course, there is an individual level component to this, right? The competitive worldview, a really cynical Hobbesian view of all against all and man is a wolf to man and just really competitive doggy dog world view. And that's what I study. And what I find is that there's a strong link between that and contempt. Other people are wasting my time. Why? I have nothing to learn from other people. And just really this vicious, contemptuous stance towards the world. What is the relationship between such competitive worldviews on the individual and on the group level as manifested by SDO? And... I don't know if I have a really great answer to that outside of, I'm sure that they're correlated. And it's funny because in the, in my lab, in Jim Stanius's lab, there was a researcher who would argue with Jim all the time about that SDO and IDO, individual dominance orientation, were practically the same thing. And so per, and I'm sure that there is a relationship between the two. Of course. I think what becomes hard though is within any group, you have individual variation. So I can have high levels of IDO within my group. But as soon as you enter into a, an integral context where my identity gives me certain advantages or disadvantages, that individual dominance orientation doesn't necessarily just get aggregated up to the group. And so I do think that there are they're related, but they are separate in part because individual dynamics don't just You don't just aggregate all the people within an individual dynamic and that's how you get group dynamics. There is a qualitatively different structure once you go from the individual to the group. And so I think from that perspective, I can have a really high level of IDO and really low levels of SDO. And I think actually perhaps a lot of people do because how they decide to dominate individually might be different than how they would they believe groups should be dominated or organized on a societal level. I think everybody, for example, I think actually some people believe this. I think the smart should rule the world. I don't believe this, but here's an, an individual ideology. Smart people should rule the world. And so I can have a really high level of individual orientation that I'm smart. You're not smart. You're, I feel contempt. You're wasting my time. How does that though get organized across groups? 
If I also believe that some groups have are more intelligent than others, then of course I should also have higher levels of SDO because that is how I understand the world should be organized. But if I think all groups are equally as smart, I can have high levels of IDO, but still fairly low levels of SDO because there, I don't think that there are any group differences. So you see what I mean? That related, but I do think that they're separatable. And I think it's important to separate them when you start to think about outcomes on an individual level versus outcomes on a Throughout this conversation, you have mentioned Jim Sedanius a couple of times, who, of course, was a world-renowned scholar on SDO for decades. He's been working on that stuff. And my understanding is that you were one of the last students who got to work with him before he passed away. And so if it's okay with you, I would like to not just honor his work, which is what we've done, but also honor him and would want to give you a chance to maybe speak a little bit about what he was like as an advisor. I miss Jim a lot. Because whenever I talk about Jim, I start to cry. But my, I don't know, my memories of Jim is just a quiet powerhouse. Like that was Jim. He, his best or his favorite phrase was, that is an empirical question, which I think drives a lot of my own curiosity about things of, that's an empirical question. We should test it because we, we would get in debates all the time. So Jim and his, I think they were students. Yeah. Student Felicia Prado came up with social dominance theory. Actually, let me reword that. Jim and his colleague, Felicia Prado, developed social dominance theory together. And so social dominance theory is a organizing framework to understand why hierarchies are ubiquitous in human societies, as well as the forces that maintain them. And from there, they came up with SDO. So let's measure people's understandings of hierarchy. And so that, that, or group hierarchy, and that's where you get SDO. But what Jim argues, which I thought was, I mean, it's just so clear, but so innovative is that there's only three types of hierarchies in human societies, age, gender, and arbitrary set. All of the hierarchies that we talk about in our research, race, nationality, religion, all those are arbitrary. They don't exist across history. They're not stable. They depend on arbitrary dimensions because race and nationality and all those things are arbitrary. Only two are stable and that's gender and age. And gender, once he starts to take like that gender hierarchy, he then came up with this theory again with other colleagues that starts to understand the intersectionality as relates to of group dynamics with gender. And it's called the theory of gender where Jim argues that all else being equal, intergroup conflict is a male-on-male phenomenon. That women of any arbitrary set group do experience discrimination, but they experience it primarily on the basis of their gender and not on the basis of their arbitrary set category. Coalitional violence, the male-on-male phenomenon. So he would argue, for example, that Black women primarily receive sexism We don't really receive racism. Racism is reserved. No one wants to have this, but it is primarily targeted toward black men. But I, I think the second conversation I had with Jim was us arguing about the theory of gender prejudice. And we just never stopped arguing ever since. It was Jim, this can't be right. Have you talked to a black woman? Like this, this is not how (laughs) the world operates. And he's like, it's an empirical question. Don't need the data. And that marks my relationship with Jim of just holding my ability to synthesize information and really think big thoughts. Like social dominance theory is huge. 
It's such a huge theory. And then he came up with the theory of gender prejudice. Again, with other colleagues, but he was such a big thinker. And he integrated across anthropology and sociology and political science and just all of these different things. And he's experienced so many things. He was part of the Black Liberation Movement. And then he got asylum in Sweden. And so technically he was a foreigner in his place of birth because he was a Swedish citizen, spoke fluent Swedish, which was a really odd (laughs) mental image of a Black man speaking fluent Swedish. He was a fantastic chess player. Like his life experiences were beautiful to, to put together. And I'm not surprised that he was such a great thinker. And yeah, like I think the world is missed out a lot that now that he is gone. So that's Jim was Jim was great. Thank you for sharing, for agreeing to share. Let's talk about your own journey into academia as someone mm. who's carrying forward that legacy. How straightforward of a journey was that? You were born and you said I wanted to be an academic. Is that I right, Jim? No, I no, I want to be a biologist. And that was what I wanted to do. I took three years of biology in high school. I wanted to understand how the world worked. And I, don't know, I knew I needed to go to college. So I'm, I identify as first gen. I have, my aunts went to college and my mom went to community. But thinking about what does it mean to go to a four-year college? It was a lot I just did not know. And so did well in biology, did well in school. So let me keep going. And so I went to Williams College for undergrad. And I was a bio major and I was like, I can do this bio thing. Real talk, psychology, I thought was for losers. I thought it was for people who couldn't hack it in the sciences. And so I was like, I don't need to take psychology. What is this? Love BS stuff. And also I only thought psychology was clinical. And so I remember, I, I completely do not agree with this now. I have grown up, I have matured. People can change. I have a girl's mindset. But anyway, <laughs> I went, I took intro to psychology sophomore spring. And when I tell you my whole worldview was like blown apart, I was like, oh my God, you can study the social world using the scientific method. This is actually a science that changed everything. So I had a thesis lined up in, in biology. I quickly turned that around. Like, no, I really want to do, I really want to do psychology. And at least for me, it was a toss up between cognitive psychology and social psychology because I loved cognitive psychology, like the idea of the Stroop task and implicit cognition, like all of that really got me going. And I took a, I took a human learning and memory course. I'm like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. When I realized that social psychology was for me is that every single time I had a question in cognitive psychology, I always added groups to it. I always added, how does this change across power? How has this changed across race? And I was like, these are all social psych questions. Maybe social psych is for me. And so I did a summer program actually at UC Berkeley the summer after my sophomore spring. And I worked with a graduate student there who ended up being my postdoctoral mentor. So really, truly, everything is full circle. So this was Michael Krause and he was a grad student. And he was working with a dude who studies power, Dacher Keltner. And I was reading about intergroup relations. And I was reading these literatures at the same time. I'm like, oh my God, they're the same literatures. All the things that happen when you don't have power, all the things that happen when you are black or a woman or poor. Maybe that means that social identities are example of power hierarchies. 
that also blew my mind. And so ever since then, like truly ever since then, I study the same thing. I study the psychological processes involved in the formation, maintenance, and intersections of social hierarchies. And I think about social hierarchies as example of hierarchies, as examples of power differences. So it's not just about, oh, different identities from a cultural standpoint, but no, you got to think about power and let's think about the intersections of the two. When I have power based on my identities, when I have power based on numbers, when I have power based on my organizational role, what happens when you cross them? That is what I'm, that is what I do. So that is how I got started. I was not always supposed to be a psychologist. I also almost wasn't a psychologist because after I left undergrad, I wanted to take a year off and I was in this program called Institute for Recruitment of Teachers, which is a phenomenal program that helps underrepresented minorities get into either K through 12, like teaching or the PhD. And during the, they had an admissions fair and I was really excited. And there was this dude who came from Stanford, which was like my number one school. I wanted to go to Stanford so badly for grad school. And he was like, oh, I was waiting for you because I guess I probably said so. And then this man looked at my CV and tore it to shreds. He's, did you work with Steve Fine at Williams? I was like, no, I worked with, I worked with Jennifer Randall Crosby, who was phenomenal. And he was like, so stopped at everything. He was like, you're not going to get into grad school. You don't have the research. You don't have the connections. You're not going to get in. So then I dropped out of IRT and I almost dropped out of trying to get into academia to begin with because I already went to four year college. Like, why did I have to go to grad school? No one in my family had ever gone to grad school. So I'm like, I'm trying to do this thing. I don't know what I'm doing. And so it just so happens that my thesis advisor, Dr. Crosby, sent me, she's like, go be a lab manager. Go, you can do this. And so I had three opportunities. It was U Chicago, U Chicago, UC Berkeley, and UCLA. Didn't hear back from U Chicago. UC Berkeley, I was supposed to work with Dana Carney. And I got to the final round. And she picked someone else before she picked me. And I was like, truly just like, don't want me. It's fine. And then Jennifer, not sorry, Janessa Shapiro at UCLA said yes for me to be her lab manager. And that is how I managed to stay in academia by the skin of my teeth. And that's how I'm here. <laughs> at Berkeley. Yeah. You Berkeley. I tried to go to grad school at Berkeley because I wanted to work with Keltner. Oh my God. Let's study intersectionality and power. And he let me rant. I'm pretty sure I was ranting about intersectionality for at least 30 minutes. And then once I wound down his Kira, I now study all. But all? All? Like A-W-W-W? No, A-W-E. <laughs> so I was like, well, guess I'm not going to Berkeley. And Jim was the one person that I felt that integrated the like power literature with the intergroup relations literature through social dominance theory. So I had a great time at Harvard. Can't complain. You got my PhD from Harvard, but it was a good time. <laughs> and now I met Berkeley after two strikes. Berkeley just didn't want me. <laughs> I learned about your work not through Google Scholar, not through any lab pages, not through any formal ways of learning about your work. I learned about it on Twitter. Because <laughs> you have a wonderful Twitter and social media presence. And I know there's a lot of heated arguments about should I even be on academic social media, Twitter? I know that I was on social media and almost didn't apply to grad school because I was too much on academic Twitter and it was just so negative and destructive. And I was like, that seems like a horrible place. Why on earth would I go to grad school? 
now I'm in grad school and love it. So it's just a, it's an alternative reality. And yet there seems to be a way to use academic Twitter for good. And if I can say so, it seems like you have found a way to use it for good and to lift people up as opposed to take them down. What is your advice for people thinking about joining academic Twitter? This also is going to sound perhaps wild, but I think academic Twitter is one of, it's a hierarchy attenuating force. So anybody can be on Twitter, which means that greater error to entry is not necessarily predicated upon status. And anybody can amass followers. Now, how you want to amass followers is a separate question. But at the end of the day, the people who have followers on Twitter don't necessarily, at least in academic Twitter, don't necessarily map on to powerhouses in the field. So there are some people who know my name who really shouldn't know my name based on formal organizational role hierarchy, blah, blah, blah. That's what I mean that academic Twitter can be a great equalizer because I can have an influence. My voice can be heard, even though I, at the time I was a grad student. At the time I was a postdoc. I didn't have a job. Who knows if I was even going to get a job and stay in academia. And yet you heard about me. And so I think when people are thinking about academic Twitter and joining versus not joining, they're oftentimes they're concerned. I don't know what to say. I don't. Do I respond to people? Do I not? I'm all of the ilk of make Twitter as authentic as possible to you. And you choose what facet of yourself you want to show. And so when I think about me, I love to eat. So you'll see posts about my food. I love my family. So you see posts about my wife and my dog. I love good intellectual debates. So whenever I see a good talk, I'm like, oh my God, that talk was great. I got to tell you, you'll see me posting about the papers that I read. I love hyping people up. I think it's fantastic when people win and I want everybody to win. And so that's what I do. I post about that. I like equity. And so when I get some new information, I'm like, let me tell you about it. Because I, if I keep it to me, then that feels selfish. But if I share it, great. So like my job record materials are on OSF because people always have to ask, hey, can I have an example of your statement of purpose? But if you don't have strong networks, how are you ever supposed to get these materials? And so the more that, you know, I don't know, I'm a big proponent of that. But there's other aspects of Twitter y'all don't see. <laughs> so it's not that I'm being inauthentic, but I'm deciding what I want to do. And so I think for people who are trying to figure out like how to enter into Twitter, I think they're thinking about it in the wrong way. It's how will other people view my Twitter and to me, the question is, how do you view your Twitter? When you look at your own feed, do you feel like that is an authentic representation of you or at least a slice of you? And if it's not, then you're, why are you on Twitter? I think Twitter is a fantastic place for crowdsourcing information. There are at least three papers that I'm writing where Twitter is in the acknowledgements. I'm like, without my Twitter family, I could not have written this paper because it was something as simple as, hey, anybody got that citation of someone's, what is it? Three people will respond within, within 10, 10 minutes. You don't get that. Like in a huge labs, huge family. And we all know our family's got issues. And I bet if someone saw your family from the outside with no filters, your family might look like a hot mess. I love my family. My family will look like a hot mess. But what people are missing are the points of joy that happen between people. And that, if you're not like all the way into academic Twitter, you don't see those spots. And so I think academic Twitter is a much 
healthier place than people think that they, than it is. But in the same way that people can get into silos, if you are in the cycle of negativity, you'll only see the negativity. But there are way too many just wonderful people on Twitter who, for the most part, post wonderful things. And so it's like, who are you following? And then the last thing I'll say about academic Twitter is that it teaches you a lot about people. So there are people who I think know things about me. I'm like, how do you even know this? So from your Twitter, fair enough. But that also shows that you can learn things about the people around you from their Twitter. And so if you are thinking about going to grad school, I do think you should follow the Twitter accounts of the people that you're thinking about being your mentors because they're telling you some aspects of themselves. Even if it's a complete lie, you meet them in person and their Twitter does not match. That tells you something because that means that they're putting on a front one way or another. It's a data point. It's a data point. It's a way of getting your own stuff out there. I think people who use Twitter to be communal get the most out of it. And so if you want to form a join academic Twitter, I think the more that you give, the more that you'll get. Whereas if you just take it, I don't really post, uh, I just take, that's one way to do it. That's the way to get out of trouble or stay out of trouble. But you also won't get nearly as much because it is a reciprocal platform. Incredible. We are out of time. And so we will have to stop right now, sadly, but... (laughs) That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. This was great. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. (laughs) This podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no-spam, all-fun substack at Stanford SciPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched day. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. (laughs) This podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no-spam, all-fun substack at Stanford SciPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched